This is the Canadian Taxpayers Podcast. We're dedicated to lower taxes, less waste, and more accountable government. I'm Todd McKay, and we've got something a little bit special for you today. Jason Kenney, Premier of Alberta, sat down for a long chat with Scott Hennig, our president here at the uh, Taxpayers Federation. Now, listen, it's always interesting to talk to a sitting premier. There, I mean, man, there's so much going on. There's like a billion things to talk about. But it's particularly interesting to talk to Jason Kenney because he used to work for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. <laughs> and now he's getting criticized by the Taxpayers Federation uh, on occasion. So it's a pretty good uh, sport to come on and, and uh, take it right on the chin from Scott on a few uh, issues, but also talk through a lot of important issues. Now, that said, this interview was done for our magazine, the Taxpayer Magazine, and it was done weeks ago. So if some of the stuff they're talking about feels a little bit out of date when we're talking about COVID or the election, that's why. This election, this uh, uh, interview wasn't done yesterday. This was done a while ago. It's kind of got a more of a long-term perspective on it. But without any further ado, here's the interview. Scott Hennig, president of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, grilling Jason Kenney, the uh, Premier of Alberta. Uh, enjoy. Okay. Uh, well, thanks for uh, agreeing to chat with me today, uh, Mr. Premier. Um, you've been on my list of people to chat to for a while. Actually, when we were uh, doing our uh, 30th anniversary last year, we were going to bug you to come and do this on stage somewhere, but then we couldn't do anything on any stage. That's right. A year ago. So uh, I appreciate you doing this now. And I think it's good uh, considering your former role here at the Taxpayers Federation and your current role and you're two years into your term, it's a good time to kind of look back, look forward and, uh, and see what's, uh, what's coming up. So I'm going to start you with a real easy question. Uh, how's the best summer ever treating you so far? Awesome. I, I have been uh, never better since Canada Day, the Alberta Freedom Day, we call it July the 1st, when we dropped uh, virtually all public health restrictions and opened up completely for summer. I call it the best summer ever uh, because it after the brutal time we've been through for 16, 17 months, just being able to reconnect and um, live normal lives. You know, I gave my mom a hug for the first time in, in 16 months on, on Canada Day, uh, having been at that point two weeks fully vaccinated. And that's what I meant by the best summer ever. I know some of the lefties on social media have mocked the concept. Um, they really do seem pessimistic. They seem to be um, uh, in a very deep funk of negativity. But I think what people are looking for is some hope and positivity and a return to normalcy. And that's what we're seeing in Alberta. Well, I, I agree. I'm actually about right after I'm done our meetings here, I'm going to head to Canmore, taking a few days off with some friends from Ontario, uh, where they're not quite so open. Uh, they're looking forward to taking advantage of, of You Alberta. know, I have a lot of friends from uh, Eastern and Central Canada who've come out to do the same thing for the same reasons. Uh, and uh, I, I see on, on Twitter some angry lefties who's from Ontario saying they were, they were going to refuse to come to Alberta because we don't have uh, public health restrictions uh, and that this is going to somehow damage our, our travel industry. But I was just talking to the head of uh, Travel Alberta. He said in many areas, our hotels are at 90% occupancy or more. And I keep hearing anecdotally about the parking lots and Banff and Jasper, Lake Louise and, and Drumheller with, uh, with license plates from Ontario and Quebec, from the U.S. Um, people are coming here and having a great Alberta summer. Um, you know, I know the weather's been uh, tough for some of our farmers uh, with drought conditions in some areas. And we're, uh, we're going to do what we can to support them through this. 
but um, generally, I think people are having a great uh, Alberta summer and enjoying this, this beautiful province. I, I think you're right. I'm looking forward to it myself. Um, talking about COVID, uh, just going back a bit, when COVID hit March 2020, governments started closing borders, closing businesses, and, and ordering citizens to stay at home. There were a couple places, well, one place in particular, Sweden, that uh, didn't follow the rest of the world's lead. Was there ever any consideration by your cabinet to, to go it alone, or I guess go it alone with Sweden and attempt the same policy? Uh, well, no. Let me, let me just comment on a couple of things there. Uh, you, the way you frame the question, it, it's kind of like there's a, uh, a dichotomy between hard lockdowns and no restrictions. And that's just not the, the policy response we saw across the Western world. Um, where there's a spectrum of responses. The way I often put it is if Sweden was a one and let's say Australia right now is a 10, where were we? Well, through much of that, Alberta would have been about a three, sometimes maybe a four, five at a maximum in terms of stringency of restrictions. Um, but first of all, uh, Sweden did have restrictions. So there's this, there's this kind of urban legend that they just let her rip. That's not true. Um, they suspended high schools and nightclubs and had capacity limits on restaurants and, and um, the ba banned large gatherings and, and, and things like that. Admittedly, they were, they were less stringent restrictions, but they were still restrictions. Um, secondly, uh, we never had a hard lockdown in Alberta. You, you mentioned it in that question, um, stay-at-home orders. We never had a stay-at-home order. We never had curfews. Um, apart from the initial period of COVID, when we suspended uh, in-classroom instruction, we basically had the schools open, uh, with the exception of a, a, a one, two-week period around the Easter break. Um, and we never closed schools because we were concerned about transmission there. We closed schools a couple of periods just because so many teachers and staff were on self-isolation or other things were happening that just made it hard to operate the schools. Uh, so I, you know, unlike other provinces, we never shut the construction industry, the manufacturing industry at the peak of restrictions in Alberta, which would have been in the first, in the um, first two months of COVID uh, spring of last year. Uh, we uh, calculate that uh, 98%, sorry, 88% of Alberta businesses were able to continue to operate without significant uh, restrictions uh, representing 95% of our economy. So um, I, I don't accept that we ever had hard lockdowns. So we, we did have restrictions and they were painful. I'm not trying to diminish that, but we felt they were necessary. And if you want to compare us to Sweden, I'd be happy to take that on because Sweden with a population about twice our size, there are 8 million and change. They, they have so far have experienced 14,600 COVID-related deaths. Alberta, with half the population, has experienced 2,300 COVID deaths. So their age-adjusted per capita COVID death rate has been three times higher, 300% higher than Alberta's. Um, I personally don't think that's morally acceptable when you're trying to balance a very, very difficult work for leadership in this context of balancing lives and livelihoods. And um, I don't think they got the right balance in Sweden. Um, I, I know a lot, it became, Sweden became the poster child for a lot of libertarian minded people, but then they have to, if you, if you want to use Sweden as this great example, then you have to be prepared to defend a death rate three times higher than Alberta's. And I certainly wouldn't be prepared to do that. I would not be um, prepared to stand in front of Albertans and defend a record with instead of 2,300 deaths, let's say a 7,000 uh, Alberta deaths. Yeah, well, that's that's a fair point. And speaking of deaths, I mean, 
I mean, I think there was going into the pandemic, you know, there, there was, I think you knew that there was going to be people that people were going to die during this period. Uh, it was unavoidable. They were either going to die of COVID if public health measures weren't taken. But there's also been, on the other hand of that, there's been an increase in opioid deaths. Uh, there's been cancellation of some medical treatments that have been locked or been linked to uh, some of the public health measures that were taken. So when you're, when you're faced with that kind of choice of either having COVID deaths or other ones, um, how do you, what, what factors do you weigh and, and what on like a personal note, how does that, how do you handle uh, being the guy that has to make those kinds of decisions like mentally? And uh, that's going to be a really difficult spot to be in. Yes, absolutely, Scott. So, so great questions. First off, some context. I talked about us versus Sweden on fatalities. Uh, let me talk about us versus the rest of the world. So Alberta has experienced so far, our, our per capita COVID death rate is 27% lower than Canada's. We're pretty significantly lower than the larger provinces. And I, I have to mention that because there's a bit of a, a media narrative developing out of a lot of um, media on the left in central Canada that Alberta has just been this terrible uh, COVID disaster when in fact we have a substantially lower death rate in Canada's. Our death rate is 45% lower per capita than the United States and about 30, 35% lower than the European unions. Mm -hmm. And according to the Oxford Blavatnik, uh, Oxford University Blavatnik think tank that has gauged the stringency of restrictions, uh, Alberta did that with less stringent public health measures than the other nine provinces, than 41 of the 50 United States. This is dealing with 2020. And uh, then um, almost all of the European Union countries. So if you take a substantially lower death rate with less stringent public health restrictions, I think an argument can be made that Alberta has done, actually done uh, relatively very well um, in the developed world in that context. Um, I think the countries that with the best response, uh, arguably, have been the East Asian countries, um, Singapore, Thailand, sorry, Singapore, Taiwan, South Korea, Japan, Hong Kong. And one of the reasons is they are not naive about the, the communist uh, regime in China. They knew that they were lying about the, the virus in the early stages, and they immediately shut their borders from Wuhan. They also brought in strict quarantine measures. And as a result, they had light restrictions and very few deaths. But when you ask about the decision-making process here, uh, incredibly difficult. I mean, we were conscious at various times um, when we, we'd have these like, all-day meetings of our emergency cabinet uh, that, that we were sometimes choosing between deaths and bankruptcies. And sometimes a bankruptcy might lead to, a, to deaths. It might lead to, um, you know, despair and uh, emotional and mental health crises and even suicides. Now, thankfully, thankfully, and this is, a, again, there, there is a urban legend amongst um, kind of libertarian critics of uh, COVID uh, restrictions that we've had this huge spike in suicide. That's not true. In fact, our um, number of suicides last year was, um, was, was about 10% uh, lower than the five-year average, which, quite frankly, I find surprising. Maybe mm -hmm. that's even counterintuitive. But it, I think it demonstrates the resilience of people getting through uh, a crisis like this. Um, opioid deaths, you're absolutely right, has been a, a, uh, one of the um, real concurrent problems. We did see the, the highest number of opioid overdoses and drug overdose deaths in our history last year with, uh, I, I think, 1,100 or so in this province, 1,300 maybe it was, and every one of those being a tragedy. And there's no doubt. There's no doubt that COVID restrictions contributed to that. 
because very early on we shut down um, residential drug treatment centers uh, and, and certain other opioid replacement programs, AA and NAA meetings, group therapy meetings and things like that. And, and that, um, that undoubtedly caused some, some um, a rupture for people who were seeking treatment and recovery. And, but uh, probably the biggest factor in driving the opioid crisis uh, last year was not restrictions, but rather um, the indiscriminate nature of the federal CERB payments. Because when you take somebody who's first and who is trapped completely by addiction, their first and last dollar goes to buy uh, dangerous drugs like fentanyl, carfentanyl, um, they're, they're going to consume more and they're going to get more potent drugs to get a, a stronger hit. And so, and also more of those folks ended up, frankly, living in hotel rooms isolated without somebody supervising them if they overdosed. And so um, we ended up with, uh, with definitely, I mean, and this is not my theory. I got attacked by the NDP for expressing this reality, mm-hmm. but people who work in the addictions field um, with uh, the, that population confirm over and over again that the, those, those $2,000 CERB payments uh, to uh, people with deep addictions fueled those things. So that was definitely an unintended consequence of government response. Mm-hmm. Um, when, but when you ask, uh, uh, by the way, one thing I have to say, Scott, I'm sorry for going so long here. No. The, you, for the uh, written version of this, you can edit me down, of course. But the notion that, um, and this ticks me off when this comes from people on the right, the notion that um, hospital or surgical uh, cancellations, both postponements were the function of COVID restrictions. That is complete inversion of the reality. Surgical postponement was because of COVID itself, the disease and not the restrictions we needed uh, at various times to ensure that we had adequate capacity uh, in the hospitals to deal with potential waves of incoming patients and particularly those who needed um, therapeutic interventions like intubation, which requires the support of anesthesiologists, respiratory therapists and ICU level nurses and there's only so many of those. You can't, I know people would say, well, expand your capacity. We expanded as much as possible, but there's a finite labor pool in those uh, specific skill sets. And so uh, we need, you know, we were not going to put ourselves in a situation, if we had a choice between uh, postponing someone's uh, joint surgery uh, or turning someone away from the hospital who needed to be intubated, mm-hmm. we were obviously going to postpone the joint surgery so we would have capacity for the COVID patients. So there's a misunderstanding, I think, on, amongst some critics who think that we canceled surgeries to, I don't know, uh, as some kind of a bloody-minded effort at restrictions. No, 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 no. It was to create capacity. If we had just let her rip, followed the South Dakota model, uh, where they had fought four or 500% more deaths than we did, well, um, then all of the surgeries would have been canceled, not just some. Right. So I would just say, uh, you know, these were hard, hard, hard decisions probably the toughest decisions I'll have to make it, ever have to make in my life. We did our best to make them um, dispassionately based on the data and the evidence, expert scientific input. But there was a lot of passion. There were tears around that cabinet table. Uh, I'm a pretty stoic guy, but I shed a few of them myself, realizing uh, the pain that some of these restrictions would impose. They were brutally difficult decisions. Yeah, I can appreciate that. Now we're we're now we're now past some of those of those uh, tough times that we've had the vaccines. We're 
leading the pack uh, now in, in the world, it seems at over 60% of fully vaccinated citizens. Uh, but there's still people that aren't. I mean, obviously those under 12, but uh, just the other people who are over 12 who haven't got vaccinated, what, what is the best reason that you could give to someone right now who is still unvaccinated that they should go and get vaccinated? The best reason is that, um, well, I have to give two, two best reasons. One, they, if they're not vaccinated, they really are vulnerable uh, to this disease. And I know that, that a lot of the unvaccinated people are young adults in their 20s and 30s who you know, don't have doctors, don't worry so much about their health. But if that's their situation, then please get vaccinated because you can unknowingly transmit the disease to people who are vulnerable. We still have 10% of people over the age of 65 who are not vaccinated. Many of them are extremely vulnerable, particularly to the more uh, virulent and uh, aggressive strains like the Delta variant. Um, so if you love your grandparents, um, if you, or, or the elderly, if you want just respect the elderly and what they've done uh, to build our society, how about a, you know, a 10 minutes of inconvenience or inconvenience yourself to go out and get a jab? I did. I didn't feel a thing. Um, on to people who say they're afraid that this is un, un this is so supposedly experimental vaccine is what I hear from anti-vaxxers. If if this is un, this is the biggest experiment in scientific history. If it's experimental, there have been over um, three and a half billion doses administered around the world. Mm -hmm. um, these are the, the most robust scientific trials ever done. There has never been a vaccine and probably never a pharmaceutical development in scientific history more studied than this in, in jurisdictions all around the world. So um, I say to those folks, uh, in, here in Alberta, here in Alberta, we have administered two point, no, no, 3.4 million doses. Um, and, 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 and 2.4 million people have been inoculated. We've had 800 adverse events re reported, almost all of them mild, like allergic reactions, nausea, and headaches that people quickly recover from. One fatality, one fatality out of uh, 2.4 million people inoculated. Mm -hmm. And that compares to 2,300 COVID fatalities. So I hope that, that, that people look... Uh, and, and, and maybe if, if what matters most to people is having their normal lives and their freedoms back, the only way we can guarantee that is if we keep pushing up the vaccine numbers. So please, for yourself, your loved ones, our freedom, please get vaccinated. Just a, a follow up on that one. What are we seeing right now in terms of hospitalizations? Is it still, I saw some evidence suggested that it's, it's on the unvaccinated who are being hospitalized oh. due to COVID. Is that still yeah, a case? I should have mentioned that. So uh, in Alberta right now, and this is true right across the world, 95% uh, of the people who are hospitalized and 95% of those who are dying of COVID uh, are unvaccinated. Mm -hmm. Only 5% um, of those hospitalized or pat dying are fully vaccinated. And, and that's a bit of a, 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 let me look at that number a different way. Mm -hmm. um, if you look at the total population of people who've been vaccinated, fully vaccinated in the United States, it's 163 million of whom 6,800 are now in hospital meaning that 99.995% uh, 
of fully vaccinated Americans uh, have, have not attracted severe symptoms from COVID-19. Like this is an absolute slam dunk. Um, if you've ever placed a bet before, bought a lottery ticket, I mean, like just, if you understand this, the, the, uh, the idea of probabilities, there is, this is as close as it gets to scientific certainty that you can protect yourself and be safe if you get vaccinated. And no, it won't magnify your arm. And it, it's not a tracking device invented by George Soros. Um, you know, I, 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 folks, like, if you don't, if you're skeptical, just call your local, uh, you, call your family doctor and talk to him or her. Okay. Well, I've, I've asked you a bunch of COVID ones. I'll, I'll move on to some other ones. Um, although related to, I, we, we've seen COVID put a, a healthcare, uh, sorry, strain on our healthcare system, but our, our long, we've long had issues with uh, Canada's uh, government controlled healthcare system and underperforming compared to other, other countries in the world. Um, what can you as the premier do to introduce more choice and competition to the healthcare system? Well, we're doing that as part of a platform commitment we made to introduce the uh, Sur Strategic Surgical Initiative. It's modeled on something that uh, Saskatchewan did about a decade ago. And so we put out requests for proposals for uh, the development and contracting of more what we call chartered uh, surgical facilities. These are, uh, dare I say it, privately owned and operated surgical facilities. What they found in Saskatchewan is that these typically these are day surgical clinics that are able to um, uh, to perform more surgeries more quickly and more efficiently than the government hospitals. And there's a whole bunch of reasons for that. Uh, the main reason that these are opposed by um, ideologically uh, by the NDP and their uh, union allies is because very often these are not union operations and, mm -hmm. and they just want a union monopoly running every aspect of healthcare. Uh, we believe that patients, not unions, not special interests, not politics or ideology, but patients should be at the center of the healthcare system. We are are of course, absolutely committed to maintaining a publicly insured system. But the question is how, what's the best way of delivering that? We think a mixture of delivery options uh, with a kind of internal competition makes the most sense. So what we're going to do is expand the, we already have, I think a, I think about 30% of our surgeries are already performed in, in, in privately owned or charter surgery, surgical facilities. Mm -hmm. uh, so we're expanding that percentage um, so we can get more surgeries done more quickly at a lower cost. It only makes sense. And by doing that, we will cut the surgical wait times, which means fewer people waiting for unreasonable uh, periods of time in pain. Many of those people in the past got addicted to opioids as, as painkillers to manage their condition while waiting for a year or two years to mm -hmm. get their surgery. Many others took their, uh, their dollars and went to the U.S., and in some cases, they were being operated on or are being operated on by Canadian physicians who right. go down to the U.S. to make a few extra bucks working at, at private surgical facilities. So, I mean, I know this. I actually know a, a, an, an Edmonton uh, physician who uh, was tired of waiting for joint surgery for two years. They finally went down and got operated on in a Denver clinic and their surgeon was an Alberta surgeon who, is, who goes down there periodically uh, to, to boost their income a little bit. So you've got, how bizarre is this? An Alberta physician being operated on by an Alberta physician in a Denver hospital um, 
why don't we bring that money and bring both of them home and get that done here and create jobs while we're at it uh, by creating more uh, capacity in the healthcare system in a more, uh, in that case, in a privately operated clinic. It only makes sense, which I guess is why uh, some special interest groups are lighting their hair on fire about this. But let, but let me be absolutely clear, Scott, this is, you don't have to get it your credit card. The government insures it. We have an interest in, in, in doing this uh, more efficiently and patients have an interest in doing it more quickly. So why do we feel that only union-run, monopoly-style government hospitals are the only place that care can happen. That's not how we treat our doctor, our, our family family docs. They almost all operate out of privately owned, dare I say it, privately owned and operated uh, family medical clinics. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's follow the same model with respect to surgeries and other procedures. That's, that's our starting point here. Okay, well, I appreciate that. Uh, COVID also put a strain on our finances, provincial finances and federal ones for that matter. I'm guessing you weren't anticipating being the premier during the largest deficit in the, uh, the history of the province. Um, I know you'd plan on getting back to balance sooner when you took over as premier, but what, what now is a realistic timeline for getting back to balance? The realistic timeline would be, I, I think, um, early in the next term of government, um, we got sideswiped by a triple black swan moment, obviously uh, the largest public health crisis in the century, mm-hmm. which then created the largest global economic contraction uh, in a, since the 1930s. And on top of that, we were hit harder than anywhere in Canada because of the largest collapse of energy prices ever. We went from uh, West Texas Intermediate, our key benchmark price for oil being um, $60 in late February of 2020, to be minus $20, if you can believe it, uh, in April of last year. Uh, so a $70 negative turnaround in our key commodity. Um, Scott, in, in before 2015, Alberta used to bring in, on average, we'd bring in about $10 billion a year in oil and gas uh, revenues. At, under the NDP, or over their four years in office, they were bringing in typically about $5 billion a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, last year, at the peak of the crisis, we we're budgeting to get $200 million from oil and gas revenues. Hmm. So basically our single largest source of revenue had disappeared. And of course, costs went up as we had to spend more to support the healthcare system and provide other support through COVID. Um, So that blew out our deficit. We were on track. We were on track um, to get to balance by 2023 as we committed to by reducing spending by about 3%. Um, but then COVID just completely sideswiped that. We're still on track to reduce that spending, but it means we probably won't be in a position to get to balance until I would say at 24, 25. Hmm. You mentioned the um, price of oil and, and you know you based your last budget on oil at, at $46. It's been uh, 60 through most of this year, 70 recently here. What, uh, what are the plans for that increased revenue? Are you getting pressure from your cabinet to increase spending or are you going to use that, uh, that increased revenue to get closer to balance quicker? Well, there's always, first of all, you're right about this. Every extra dollar in WTI on an annualized basis represents an incremental $230 million for the Alberta Treasury. So, you know, so far we're averaging uh, $68 WTI this year, we budgeted up for, I think, $46. So just, you can do the math there. It means our revenues would be, would be if this is, if these prices are sustained, mm-hmm. $4 to $5 billion higher in this fiscal year. But Scott, 
that would that that alone would only take our deficit from 18 uh sorry 17 billion down to say 12 billion give or take mm-hmm. so it doesn't solve the problem and yes we're getting pressure for more spending from all corners uh but we are absolutely determined to hold the line on our fiscal plan which is to bring alberta's per capita program spending uh to to the average of the canadian provinces uh, instead of the the 20% premium that we've been paying for our public services, uh, that, that I think just reflects uh, inefficiency in, in Alberta government. Uh, we are gradually, um, through restraint, br- bringing down that 20% overspend so we'll be on par with the rest of Canada. Uh, so that's our spending track. And then anything we get on the revenue side that's incremental is, is just a bonus that will help us to accelerate getting back to balance. I'm glad to hear that. Uh, one one area of, of spending that eats up a lot of dollars is on wages. And I know that uh, back in the 90s, when you were in my chair and Premier Klein was in your chair, you you were uh, had a front row seat to see uh, that government negotiate a 5% wage rollback. Um, you've, your government here recently has asked for a 3% wage rollback from some government employees, uh, considering our state of finances probably worse than they were back in the 90s. Um, why not ask for a 10% rollback? Well, uh, first of all, uh, I took a 10% rollback. One of the very first things our government did is I, I took a 10% pay cut. MLAs took 5%. And that was after a earlier uh, 2014 5% rollback. So my position pays 15% less. Uh, and oh, by the way, just worth mentioning, there's no MLA pension plan. When I was with the CTF, and it, um, we managed to persuade the client government to scrap it. Um Public servants, we, we respect the good work that they do, especially frontline workers like our nurses through COVID. And uh, we want to compensate them, uh, I always say, not just fairly, but even, even generously. Uh, I don't mind that we having our people paid uh, even a little bit more than the national average, but we can't have them as, as significant outliers, you know, in terms of getting paid substantially more than their counterparts across the country. And that's why we're asking them in collective bargaining for some restraint with the minus threes, uh, which is the average request in our position for collective bargaining. Um, I would say, uh, why aren't we asking for more? Well, a couple of things. Um, there has been, we, do, we need to acknowledge this, there's been a, uh, a public sector uh, compensation freeze for mm, going on seven years now. Uh, so their compensation has diminished in real inflation adjusted terms. Now, caveat, the, the unions will never point this out. But as you know, many of them have a graduated step ups in their compensation based on seniority. So as they serve longer, they actually do get raises. It's just not a general raise in the entire uh, base salary for, say, nurses and teachers. Um, but, you know, we, 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 the other thing is, is the private sector is starting to recover here. Um, I, we thought it was untenable to maintain uh, a, a really significant gap between public and private sector salaries as the private sector was getting boulderized in the last five years in this province with layoffs and wage compression uh, and reductions in, in, in income. But the public sector was kept whole with the benefit of job security, which is what people in the private sector never have, and the benefit of defined benefit pensions, which almost no one in the private sector has. So you look at all of that in the mix, and we thought that minus three was a reasonable request, uh, and that, and then also minus ten would almost certainly guarantee massive labor unrest. And um, you know, uh, we we just don't think that um, Al- Al- Albertans are are in a mood for for uh, endless uh, unrest of that nature. 
Okay, well, I understood. You mentioned uh, two things. One, one, the defined benefit pension plans that uh, government employees have. Yeah, that's that's an issue that hasn't been tackled by a government in this country since the, you know, the Alan Blakeney government in the Saskatchewan in the 70s, where they they changed most of their defined benefit pension plans over to defined contribution. Um, is there any appetite from your government to tackle this uh, this issue and, and get some pension reform for government employees in, in Alberta? That is not part of our agenda, but Scott, we are working on delivering uh, the most detailed uh, platform in, in an Alberta electoral history. Um, uh, around 300 separate commitments and still managing our way through multiple crises. Um, we've also got the, the issues of the, what we call the fair deal fight with Ottawa. Uh, our, our hands are full and, and that's just not part uh, of our agenda. I do, I do note though, that in case people, younger readers aren't aware, the Yellen Blakeney government in Saskatchewan that did that was an NDP government. Mm -hmm. And um, I, uh, so that's just not on our agenda. This we're, we're focused on really our number one focus now is jobs in the economy, um, uh, and, and on that there's some good news. We we are seeing Alberta leading Canada economic growth this year, and we we expect next year. Uh, that's where my attention is. Okay. Well, you did also mention um, the campaign that you ran when you were with the CTF, and you had that famous interaction with uh, Premier Klein in the uh, in the basement of the Alberta Legislature, where you went toe to toe over the pension issue. Um, what do you remember from that day? What, what, uh, tell me, tell me the story of that day. <laughs> well, yeah, that would have been, I think in March of 1993, and we had been running a campaign to reform, not to end, but to reform the Alberta MLA pension plan. We were, per your last question, we were just asking Ralph to shift it from a, a very generous defined benefit plan to a self-funding defined contribution plan. Mm -hmm. And, um, the, it was a very hot issue. And, and in those days, Scott, uh, you're too young to know all of this, I think, but you've read the history of the CTF, but in the early nineties, we really reached the peak of tax fatigue in Canada. The GST had just come in, governments at every level were running massive deficits and their only solution was raising taxes. It wasn't until Ralph, that year in 1993, partly under pressure from us, uh, created a new, uh, approach, which was actually to cut wasteful spending. Mm -hmm. And um, we thought it was symbolically important for the elected leaders to be part of it. Um, but he had inherited an older caucus of folks from the Lougheed and Getty era who were going to max out on these pensions and they, they weren't going to let anybody touch it. Uh, so it was a really difficult issue for then Premier Klein. And what happened, I was, I had just uh, done a news conference where we, um, dropped off 40,000 petition signatures. And I was doing a scrum in the basement of the legislature near the cafeteria, just below my, where my office is here. And it was about 1130 in the morning. And um, I guess the premier heard I was down there. He was right ticked about our whole campaign. And classic Ralph, he just called an audible and, and walked downstairs, made it made a beeline through the scrum. And I'll never forget how astonished I was as this 23-year-old kid surrounded by TV cameras and media to see the premier going straight at me. Um, I may have detected, I've never said this before, but I may have detected a certain whiff of adult beverages uh, at, at that time. Uh, and uh, so he was, let's just say, I think he was well lubricated for the fight. And, and he just went af after me saying that we were misleading people and, and uh, it wasn't correct. And I just held my ground. I just responded with the facts. 
And um, it, 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 we went at it back and forth for a good 10 minutes and the TV cameras were like following a tennis match back and forth. Um, but ultimately his staff pulled him out of there and uh, a note to my staff, do that if I ever get into an argument like that. Um, they, they pulled him out of there and, and, the, and the whole thing just went wild. And two days later, he had a caucus meeting and said, okay, we can't touch you, you guys who are retiring because you've got vested benefits, it's a legal right, et cetera. But the rest of us, we are scrapping the pension going to zero uh, from now on. And it was, it was a huge win for the, the Taxpayers Federation and I would say for taxpayers in Alberta. Uh, well, I would agree with that. What, what, speaking of Ralph Klein, what, what do you think he would say today if he could see you in his seat? Occasionally <laughs> taking, well, I remember meeting yeah, him well, Taking some um, heat. Yeah, you're taking some heat from the CTF now some days. So what would you say to that? <laughs> oh, I'm sure he'd get a good chuckle from it. He, he, Ralph had a great sense of humor um, and, and he would appreciate that. I will tell you this, that um, uh, it, it was, he, he went into that situation really trailing badly in the polls and um, pick, pick carrying baggage from previous governments and stuff. Um, but when they when they followed our our game plan and scrapped the pension plan, they just shot it up in popularity. And then he brought in that historic 1993 budget that cut spending by by 18 percent mm-hmm. and um, galvanized the province. And they went on to win that election. And, and, and he later uh, and, and, you know, I think that we played at least a, a significant role in helping to articulate the, the new pub voter consensus that elites had not been listening to about fiscal responsibility. And he later came up to me. Um, it was a meeting right across the hall in the cabinet room. And I was being briefed with some other groups on the budget. And he said, thank you very much, Jason. You guys helped to get us elected. By which he meant by creating a public mood, uh, not creating, but, but helping to inform and, art- and kind of re- re- reflect the, public, the new public mood for fiscal responsibility, created a space for that government to do some pretty dramatic reforms. I have no doubt. I have no doubt. What, what, what was your favorite campaign when you were the, at the CTF? What was your favorite victory or campaign? Was that, was it, was it the pensions or was it a different one? Yeah, that one was pretty wild um, and memorable, but I, I would say the favorite one was what we called the no more taxes uh, movement in the winter of 2015 when uh, the, so no, 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 not 2015. Uh, my, getting my decades confused. It's so long ago now, Scott, uh, uh, the winter of 1995. Yeah. When um, uh, the Kretchen government was elected at the end of 93. OK. Uh, and, and people who are old enough will remember we were Canada was a fiscal basket case. then. Their first budget in 94, they kind of punted it. They didn't really do any make any tough decisions. But then Canada was starting to really have difficulty selling its bonds. Um, and our debt to GDP ratio was almost the highest in the developed world. And, um, you know, the deputy minister of finance, the governor of the Bank of Canada were starting to, to blow the, the, the alarm. And so uh, the Kretchen, Prime Minister Kretchen and Finance Minister Martin realized they had to do something dramatic to get the federal finances under control. And they started to release trial balloons in November, December of 1994 about significant tax hikes. Well, I was president of the CTF at the time, and I just said, this is what the organization exists for is to mm-hmm. is to fight back at exactly a moment like this. This was like the raison d'etre for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. So we sprung into action. 
we put together uh, in, in hyperspeed a national campaign. Up to that point, CTF had largely been just in Western Canada, but we had some small taxpayer groups um, being run out of people's basements kind of thing in, in Ontario and, and even in, in the Atlantic. And we decided this is a national moment for us. So we put together this campaign and Jan we started these no more taxes rallies, very simple message. In January, we had the, the Sun newspaper ran free ads for us. We, we, we uh, uh, raised significant uh, amounts of money specifically focused on this campaign. So we had a huge advertising campaign. Um, and we didn't know how it was gonna go, Scott, but the very first, we went from West to East and the very first rally would have been middle January of uh, 1995. And we, uh, we rented a, the, the ballroom at the Georgia Hotel in, on um, Georgia Street in Vancouver. Um, it was supposed to start at noon, but by 11 a.m., the place was already packed and we had people lined up like two blocks down the street an hour before. And, and the fire department was at the police and like, it was chaos. So we called an audible and we managed to rent the largest ballroom of the Vancouver convention center, which is underground uh, across the street there. And, and instead of a capacity of 500, it had a capacity for like 2000 and we packed it out. Hmm. We, we had, we had no idea. This was like TNT a political, uh, you know, uh, it was political dynamite. And, 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 and so we packed that ballroom out with 2000 people. Uh, and, and, and then, you know, we came to, to Alberta and there were just massive rallies in Edmonton, Calgary, Red Deer, and it just rolled across the country. By the time we got to Toronto, a similar thing happened. Um, we had a rally in downtown and they were packed up, out, up the stairs of the Sheraton out, out, out to University Avenue. There must have been three, 3,500 people come to downtown Toronto's event. And, and we start, okay, let's stop renting hotel. But the problem was it was winter. We couldn't really do outdoors things. So we rented the next night in Ajax, Ontario, a, an entire, uh, basically like a warehouse. 5,000 people came out. This, this became the front page cover story of McLean's Magazine, night after night on national television news, driving. And do you know what? It really made an impact. It really punched through. And Paul Martin personally told me that. Um, I remember he asked for to meet with me privately about three weeks before his budget in February of 95. And he said, okay, we got the message, call off the dogs. So <laughs> I could see, and it was so cool to actually see that our organization, it worked, the model worked and we stopped significant tax hikes in that budget. Well, that's, yeah, I, I, that's one that uh, I think a lot of people that were working with the organization back then point to as a, the seminal moment, but also the one they had the most fun with. So, and actually one of yeah, our, it was, the, it was, it was wild. It, it, it was, it was like uh, just the momentum carried itself. It, it was, uh, it was exciting to see. Yeah. Well, they're one of the, one of the organizers, Paul Pagnuolo, actually, he, I don't know if you caught the news. He passed away last year, the end of last year. Oh no. He did. Oh my gosh. I'm so sorry to hear that. Yeah. God, that was with us back in those days. Um, sorry. Speaking, speaking of, of uh, you said avoid major tax hikes. One of the campaigns you were involved with was uh, in Alberta was uh, getting the tax for protection act in place where there has to be a referendum before any, uh, any provincial sales tax can be implemented. You've, 
recommitted to that recently, uh, or at least a few months ago with a, a letter to us. Um, are, do you think that you're still going to be able to balance the budget uh, in the next you know, five, 10 years without a provincial sales tax? Yes. Great. <laughs> that's, an easy, that's an easy one. That's the answer I was looking for. So that's perfect. Uh, we'll move on to a different tax. Um, your first bill as premier was to uh, repeal the Alberta carbon tax. Um, we unfortunately lost the Supreme Court challenge, and I, I say we because we were interveners in, in all of the cases. And thank you for that. Yes, uh, our pleasure. Uh, sadly, uh, didn't get the result we wanted, but um, we've now got a decision to make, I guess, as people who oppose carbon taxes. Um, on one hand, we can either just leave the one in Ottawa in place, because I, I think it's arguably easier to fight one carbon tax than 10. But on the other hand, if you can improve upon the Ottawa carbon tax uh, by reducing gasoline taxes or other, uh, you know, refunds on the tax, is that something you have to consider? Or I guess in another way of putting it, what's the best move for provinces like Alberta and Saskatchewan that oppose a carbon tax that uh, benefits their taxpayers without locking us into a carbon tax forever? Well, we're trying to figure out the answer to that question. We're looking at uh, all of the options. Um, uh, and I need to reinforce that... Uh, if we don't come up with an alternative, then we, the, we're stuck paying the Trudeau carbon tax. And mm -hmm. that is, the, people say to me, well, why can't you use the notwithstanding clause, for example? Well, just to be clear, the notwithstanding clause only applies to uh, eight specific sections of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. None of them have anything to do with taxation or environmental policy or any of that. So it, it, the notwithstanding, Alberta has no legal power to override this. Um, and so we're, we're stuck with this. Um, we fought the good fight. We got a, we won big four to one at the Alberta appeal court. And we were not, you know, we, we had three judges at the Supreme Court of Canada rule with us. Uh, so it could have gone the other way, but it didn't. We lost six to three at the Supreme Court of Canada. Um, so what we're looking at, like Saskatchewan right away came in with trying to replicate what Ottawa has permitted for some East Coast provinces, which effectively it was to, to rebrand their gas excise tax as a carbon tax. And uh, the feds have now stepped in and said, nope, that does not, that's not gonna work. Even though we gave it to the Eastern provinces, it won't work for the, we won't accept it for the West, which is outrageous, an outrageous uh, double standard. Mm -hmm. um, so we're, we're looking at all of uh, the options. I mean, one option is, is, uh, is just to, to a, a, allow the, the, the feds to continue to do this, uh, which, which I, I, I can't stand, but, um, the other is um, that possibly to expand the major emitters levy that we have in some uh, discrete ways. That's the technology innovation and emissions reduction levy, uh, which we ran on and which is a successor to a levy on major industrial emitters that the Stelmac government put in place 10, 12 years back. Um, uh, and, you know, uh, one option might be going to a cap and trade, they say, system like Quebec has, perhaps entering into a cap and trade market with Quebec. Uh, maybe other provinces would be interested if we did that. My look, Quebec's effective uh, tax or price, uh, quotes, price on carbon is $20 a ton through their cap and trade uh, versus the current $40 a ton we're paying with the Trudeau tax. Um, on the other hand, um, we don't think the feds would accept that either at this point. So our options are limited. Uh, we're going to, we're consulting with Albertans. We're going to try to figure out the, the answer, which imposes the least cost on Albertans. That's the bottom line. 
I appreciate that. It's I, I, we've been trying to figure out our, our suggestions to uh, both governments as well. And I'm, I think it's a, it's a tougher one than it looks like. So yeah, I wish you well on that one. Speaking of the carbon tax, um, you endorsed uh, Aaron O'Toole for CPC leader uh, during the leadership race. He pledged to end the federal carbon tax, but has since broken that pledged and, and uh, proposed his own carbon tax. And his poll numbers are now trailing Trudeau uh, by a fair margin. So how, how surprised are you that he abandoned his no carbon tax promise? Well, look, I, I don't think he abandoned it completely. I think that's it's a modified uh, uh, model that he's proposing. Um, I, I would obviously look at our position is clear. We don't believe that carbon taxes are effective environmental policy. And I mean, BC's had one for over a decade and their emissions are higher now than they were then. Um, the only way that they become effective in really reducing emissions is if they are at a punitive rate, which hammers ordinary people uh, for the crime of heating their home and filling up their gas tank, which I think is unconscionable. Mm -hmm. um, and um, otherwise, I think it's a lot of virtue signaling and greenwashing that's, a, that's an expensive nuisance for people. So I will continue to argue against it. Um, I think that uh, Aaron has felt that he, he needed to kind of put in the window uh, a quote unquote credible uh, climate policy uh, for uh, voters in central Canada. Um, that's his, look, it's his judgment call. At the end of the day, uh, I definitely want to see a change in the federal government. And that means that a federal conservative party has to win seats uh, in central Canada. Um, and uh, so I'm not going to tell him how to run his, his campaign or dictate his platform. But at the end of the day, uh, we need a change of government for a government that actually is, is focused on taxpayers, um, fiscal responsibility, but also a government that will allow us here in Western Canada to, to develop our resources to continue being the engine of Canada's economy. And, and that's almost existential for us. So I, I'm going to be supporting the federal conservatives for obvious reasons. Speaking of, of developing our, our resources and our access to markets, um, you know, we're, um, I'd say that we have a, uh, CTF has a history of opposing corporate welfare. Um, you know, believe it has a bad track record. Uh, we've seen you dabble in this area a little bit recently, uh, in particular, I guess I'd like to get get some um, into your brain a bit and, and figure out what, what reasoning did you have when making the investment in the Keystone XL pipeline? Our government was elected uh, on three key priorities, jobs, the economy, and pipelines. And we were elected to fight back against the campaign to landlock our energy, a campaign that has killed multiple pipelines, Northern Gateway, Energy East, massively screwed up uh, Trans Mountain expansion, killed multiple LNG projects, et cetera. The same campaign that's trying to decommission line five that goes to Ontario, that's trying to kill the Enbridge line three, uh, the same campaign that ultimately led to the Obama and then Biden vetoes of Keystone XL. So uh, we made a strategic decision based on the marching orders that voters gave us that we were not going to back down. We were not going to let the green left special interests, especially the, the ones funded by US foundations, we were not going to let them uh, landlock our energy. Um, and we were gonna push back on all fronts. You know, I remember a conversation 
uh, I had with Stephen Harper about this, where he's, his advice to me was, uh, you've, you've got to, to use every possible avenue at your disposal to push to get pipelines built and energy out. And even if you don't win on one of those projects, you're pushing back. You're forcing the other side to play defense. And, the, and, and you know, we thought there was, a, I'll tell you the truth, we uh, obviously pre pre President Trump had permitted KXL. If we had not, TC Energy came to us in the summer of 2018, uh, sorry, 2019, and they said, um, look, we cannot get investors into this because of political uncertainty. And uh, so we are asking the government to come in with some backstop. And if you don't, we're just killing the project, even though we have political approval because of the context, political and legal uncertainty. And we said to ourselves, look, this is not a market failure. This is a political failure. And we will not let political uncertainty created by the green left uh, kill a pipeline. We're going to step behind it to de-risk it, frankly, just as the Trudeau government did with Trans Mountain. To their credit, I don't like the price they paid for it. I don't like the fact that they created the uncertainty that led to that uh, that uh, Kinder Morgan bailing mm -hmm. uh, on Canada. But the point was this: if we didn't step in with backstop, the project was DOA, and we thought there was a, at least a good chance that we could see it through. That either Trump would get reelected, or at that point, Biden was the only major Democrat candidate for the presidency who had not committed to a retroactive veto. He was being supported by the private sector unions that support the project, by Layuna, building trades, steel, steel uh, workers, um, and, and the other construction unions. So we thought there was at least an even chance that Biden would, would, would let construction proceed, and that obviously Trump would. And if we got the thing built, it was gonna be worth $30 billion to the government of Alberta shipping 850,000 additional barrels for you know, decades to come per day, per day. But to put that in comparison, the NDP put 4.3 billion on the line um, on a crude by rail contract that would only operate for two, three years shipping 150,000 barrels a day. Um, whereas we put a $1.2 billion investment in a project that would have been shipping 800,000 barrels a day for 30 years and would have been worth about 30 billion to the government of Alberta and would have sent a critical message of, of, the, of, of refusing to, to surrender. So those are the reasons we went into it. We went into it eyes wide open, knowing that there was risk, but mitigating the risk with our, by defending our legal rights. We will be suing the US administration um, with TC Energy under the NAFTA investor protection provisions to reclaim our losses. And I think we have a very good chance at that. Um, and we are uh, encouraged to see a coalition of, I now think, 26 U.S. states uh, suing Biden in court as well. So the story's not over yet. Hmm. Okay, well, we'll keep, we'll keep watching it. Uh, one other energy issue <clears throat> or project was the Sturgeon Upgrader, one that um, former finance minister Ted Morton's, uh, I think he's called it a boondoggle. Yeah, your government recently invested more money into it. Is there, is there no way for taxpayers to get rid of this white elephant without, uh, without it costing us more money? Well, I would argue, Scott, that, that our, what we've done is going to cost us uh, $2 billion less in money. Uh, and in fact, I think the, 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 those are just the facts. Uh, look, I don't, I'll be blunt. I, I, um, 
I agreed with Ted Morton's analysis of this back in the day when this when the when a previous government uh, signed that agreement. I think Alberta got a raw the raw end of the deal. We were on the hook as taxpayers to continue stroking like uh, $400 million checks every year uh, as the um, toll payer on, on this, on this uh, project. And that was with that ble- fiscal bleeding was going to continue for year after year and decade after decade. What we've done uh, is to, to, we entered into some very negotiations. We took an, an ex- very aggressive stance um, frankly, to push out the former operators, to be blunt, mm-hmm. uh, and to take an ownership stake, which now um, guarantees us a return, which we didn't have before. Uh, and it significantly reduces the exposure of taxpayers. Net, net, um, this is a represents a $2 billion savings for taxpayers. Now, do I like any of this? No, absolutely not. But the only other way out of it, Scott, the mm-hmm. only other way, would be to go into the legislature with a bill uh, to uh, legislatively abrogate the contracts, mm-hmm. uh, which would be like banana republic style tactic. It would cr- crater investor confidence in the rule of law in this province and the honor of the crown. It, uh, it would it would be catastrophic in the long term. You could never, no investor would be able to trust the government of Alberta in the future. If we walked in there and through force majeure, used our, our, our statutory power. And then there would be all sorts of legal challenges and we'd probably have to pay billions of dollars of compensation or there'd be a good chance of that at the back end. So based on all of our legal and financial analysis, this was the best way to mitigate our losses. I wish it had never happened, but at the end of the day, we're saving $2 billion over the next 10 years or so. Okay, that's a fair answer. Um, I wanna be respectful of your time. How much time do I got left here? With? You can keep rolling. Okay. Um, so this, just change topics here a bit. This fall, your government's uh, put forward a referendum on equalization. Uh, what's your sales pitch? Why should Albertans vote in favor of removing Section 36.2 of the Constitution? Because we need a fair deal. And this is a chance to vote yes to a fair deal. To say to the rest of the country, we have been uh, the engine of Canada's economy and the Federation for decades. We can... Tr- $20 billion a year net through our federal taxes to the rest of Canada, $630 billion net since the mid-60s. Um, and yet we have governments blocking pipelines, uh, hammering our largest industry. And um, it, it, we, we, we need a new deal. And, and this, we felt, was the most powerful way of of raising our fight for fairness to the top of the national agenda. Voting for this referendum doesn't guarantee a constitutional amendment. What it does is we believe force negotiations. And then we can put our demands on the table in the context of constitutional negotiations. Um, At the very least, what it does is to elevate our fight for fairness to the top of the national agenda. Um, Look, I'm a Canadian. I'm not a separatist. I believe separating would be massively counterproductive by landlocking this province. We wouldn't have coastal pipelines, et cetera. Uh, we wouldn't have free, free trade agreements with, like we do with NAFTA. I think, I think it would be an economic catastrophe, create massive uncertainty. Um, and that's why I won't, we won't do a referendum on, on separation. I think it would, just, it would cause massive flight of capital investment jobs just when we're trying to recover. Um, but I do note that Quebec has been very effective at 
dominating the politics of the Federation by having a couple of referendums. And the referendums where they didn't win, but by being the squeaky wheel in the Federation, this is our chance to be the squeaky wheel. Okay. You've also got another referendum that you've put forward for this fall on daylight savings time, uh, on, on ending it. Uh, which way do you lean on that question and why put that one on the ballot this time? Well, personally, I lean in favor of uh, having uh, one clock uh, uh, all year long, like Saskatchewan does. Mm -hmm. uh, I think they've got it right. Um, and I just think it's, it, it, it's less, uh, you know, there's a lot of evidence that changing the clock um, creates uh, uh, a lot of problems, safety problems on, on the roads and people uh, um, sometimes uh, uh, health issues that get, so that there's a lot of, it's just an inconvenience. Um, we've had two referendums on this in the past. I think they were in the 50s and 60s. So it seems to be a tradition to let Albertans decide on this. A number of our surrounding jurisdictions, BC, Yukon, Washington, Montana, Oregon, California, have all decided to go to the uh, uh, stay, uh, with, not to change their clocks. And so we want to be aligned with the regions around us. So that's those are the reasons I support it. But I, 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 I frankly... This is not a hill for me to die on. I'm, I'm happy, whichever way Albertans decide, looking forward to a, a good debate and, and see what the outcome is. Uh, well, I, I've been uh, late or early to various hockey games over the years in the morning uh, of daylight savings time. So I'll be voting yes myself. So, <laughs> all right. Um, question for you just about your time at the CTF. You, it was uh, been 25 years since you left. So what do you wish you knew then that you since learned as a politician when it comes to how advocacy groups can impact public policy? Um, that's a great question. I, I would say um, I, I would say I think it's important for advocacy groups to um, a, a lot's going through my mind. A couple of things. First of all, think long-term. To be blunt, advocacy groups, I mean, they have to pay the bills, they have to raise money. And, and especially in this social media or this kind of electronic era of communications, that means getting people ramped up on, on pretty short-term and sometimes symbolic issues. I understand that, but I, I think it's really important that uh, advocacy groups uh, take the long view. Um, and, and I'll give you an, a, a good example. Think of the campaign of defamation run by the uh, green left advocacy groups against the oil sands and the Canadian oil uh, sector. Um, obviously, I'm a hardcore opponent of what they do, but you've got to acknowledge that they've been pretty effective. When they, when they started that campaign 15 years ago, uh, no one was thinking like that. And they, they've just been absolutely persistent. So I think it's important to take the long view on big issues. The second thing is uh, in terms of, of more immediate issues, understand that, that for governments, for people like in my position, um, often there are no perfect solutions. There are only less bad choices. That was certainly the case through COVID. And, you, and, and you've got to meet governments where they are with practical solutions. Um, and, and I, think, I, I think some groups that just ask for the moon get ignored uh, because uh, they're not at all realistic. So look at the real choices that governments have to make, the real trade-offs that they have to make 
Uh, and I, I, from my perspective, I listen a lot more to advocacy groups who do that, uh, who understand that, because if, if all a group does is just like cheap and easy criticism, ultimately that's not gonna change policy. Uh, so I would say, think long-term, but also be realistic in what you're trying to achieve. So what, I guess maybe is that, uh, so that's your advice for the advocacy group. So what, what advice do you give to regular Canadian taxpayers on how they can best have influence over public policy in their country or what actions can they, that actually, what, what actions really move the needle when it comes to MPs, MLAs, ministers, leaders like yourself? You know, the basic stuff, it, it, it matters. Um, supporting groups like the CTF, uh, you, you needed these independent voices, uh, and secondly, the phone calls and, and, and personal messages to uh, MLAs, MPs, ministers, that, that stuff matters. I can tell you, every time there's a, a significant issue, we ask the MLAs, how much traffic are you getting in your office? The fir very first thing they do is they say, well, we got 500 letters on this, but 300, you know, whatever, 400 of them were auto-generated by this union or that interest group. So we pay, first of all, you just totally discount that because it's the mm -hmm. same people. It's AstroTurf, fake campaigns. Everybody just totally discounts that. They'll say, but I had a hundred real constituents actually reach out to me and this is what they're saying. So getting real people to reach out. And, I'm, and I would say for folks on the CTF side of the issues, folks, we need you to speak up. Every one of our MLAs every day gets uh, emails, phone calls, letters, visits from uh, the big spending interests, the, the groups that want to raise your taxes, that want, um, that have no sense of fiscal responsibility, that think that, that uh, the taxpayer is just a big uh, ATM. And most of the pressure comes from them. And, and the whole reason the CTF was started was to give a voice to the to the silent majority who pay, actually help pay the bills, and you got to speak up. You got to equalize, frankly, the pressure on your elected officials. Uh, they need to hear from you, um, and and that would be my encouragement. All right, so I've got just a couple questions left. Uh, they're going to be easy ones for you. So, well, maybe they're easy for you. Um, what do you want to do once you're done elected office? <laughs> well. Um, Right now, after COVID, I'd, I'd just like to have a couple, a few days off to catch up on my sleep. Um, that's the immediate thing. But uh, I would say um, I, I there's a lot of things that interest me. I, uh, um, I, I I could see myself kind of going back into the nonprofit uh, world that, that I came from in the CTF. I, uh, you know, I'm a kind of an Irish scrapper. I I, I can't st stand sitting on the sidelines. Uh, so fighting for my convictions one way or another would, would probably appeal to me most. That's where I find, you know, satisfaction and, 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 uh, value in, 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 in what I do. Um, but, um, and, and I'd love to, I love mentoring, uh, younger people. I've always had uh, all my time in, in public office. I've always had a lot of interns and really love, uh, uh, working with, with my dad was a teacher and a principal. And was brilliant at that. And if I had some kind of a, an opportunity as well to share, in part, some of my experience that I've had in a lot of different areas of policy, um, I, I, I would love that opportunity too. 
Uh, but you know, I, 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 there's also, I also have an entrepreneurial streak. I, I, so I'm, I'm sorry, this is a long answer, but one of the reasons that I took that, the, the job offer I had to help start the CTF branch here in Alberta back in 1991 was because it was really starting a brand new organization from scratch. And that just really appealed to the, my entrepreneurial side. So who knows, maybe go out and start a business. Oh, well, fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, what's, what's playing on your radio when you're driving around in your truck? Oh, well, I, I've got incredibly broad musical tastes, but uh, often the, that country uh, on, on the uh, Sirius XM uh, radio thing, um, I guess one of, I guess one um, art, artist I listen to a, probably a lot in the last couple of years is Coulter Wall, a great Saskatchewan boy, happens to be son of former Premier Brad Wall. Mm -hmm. And if you guys haven't heard of him, check him out. He is, he's like the emerging kind of Johnny Cash or Towns Van Zandt, singer, songwriter, amazing, gritty, prairie, Canadian uh, country artist. He's a big fan. I'm sorry. I'm a big fan of his, excuse me. Oh, very good. I'll check that out. I think actually, I think we've heard some Coulter Wall before. It's pretty, pretty, pretty good stuff. Um, what's your all-time favorite movie? Gallipoli comes to mind. 1982, uh, Mel Gibson movie about the Aussies uh, in the First World War. Hmm. And right. I wish we had a Canadian version of that, by the way. Hmm. Fair enough. Uh, is there a book you've read lately that you'd recommend? Um, yeah, oh, there's quite a few. Uh, let me think. One thing, this is kind of... Well, I finally got around to reading the Sir Martin Gilbert uh, official biography of Sir Winston Churchill. And I'm a bit of a Churchill, I'm a big Churchill fan. So uh, that's an epic uh, biography and story. Uh, but one thing I'm slowly making my way through is actually your, my tablet here is on top of the um, Alberta in the 20th century series. Yeah. Mm. I'll grab this. There you go. The Byfields one. Yeah. Um, there we go. Alberta in the 20th century. This is the one of the first. Uh, uh, it, it's a 10 volume. Actually, no, 13 volume series. Yeah. Uh, and it's really amazingly well done. Um, and it was if, if you guys are speaking to Albertans here, but if you're interested in our history, that'd be a good read. I mean, it, you better schedule a year for it. Right? Well, it's funny. I actually recommend that. I, I just made Kevin Lacey, our new Alberta director, go and buy all 13 editions of it because I, I think it's a fantastic read and really well written by journalists. So 100%. Great suggestion. Um, that's, I think those are all the questions I got for you. Premier. Thanks for uh, thanks for doing this and thanks for joining us. Well, thanks, Scott. It was a pleasure. And um, thanks for what you guys do. I know you're critical of me and my government from time to time. That's your job. No, no hard feelings. I, uh, I think it's so important. We, we continue to have an independent voice for taxpayers and uh, wish you guys all the best. Well, thank you very much. Appreciate that. Hi, I'm Scott Hennig, president of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. If you've got another minute, I'd like to ask you to think about the one person you know that would really enjoy listening to this podcast. Do us a favor and do them a favor and send them a quick note to let them know about it. At the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, we believe there is power in numbers. That's why we've worked so hard to build an army of taxpayers who are ready to push back. And we did it because people like you shared our work with that one person that they knew would really appreciate taking part. Thanks for listening, and thanks for doing your part to make Canada a better place.